Good morning. <laughs> For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Mitch. I'm our pastor of engagement here. And I have the blessed opportunity to speak to you guys about fear and worry, which is ironic because I'm not scared of anything. Um, and also, I never worry about anything either. And if you listen really carefully, you can hear my wife rolling her eyes all the way from Dallas because I am definitely like the worrier in our family. I am like Enneagram six, like everything needs to be planned out, secure, like I need to know who's going to be there, how long are they going to be there, like what are the escape routes, like I'm that guy. Um, it's just how I've operated a lot in my life. Um, but a lot of that can be rooted and a lot of that in an unhealthy setting can be a place where fear and worry can grow into your God in your life, whether or not you see it that way. But before we get too far into that, let's look at our anchor verse um, for this message, and it's in Luke 10, 38 through 42. This is when Jesus goes to visit Mary and Martha. Uh, now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings. But Martha was distracted by much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister's just left me to serve alone? Tell her to get up and help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're so anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. And, you know, as I was thinking about fear and worry, I felt like God was leading me to this verse. And though it says, you know, like Martha was worried about a lot of things, I still didn't get like fear. Like, like what? I didn't really understand. I was like, why are you leading me to this verse for fear and worry, Lord? Like she seems like anxious, like she's doing a lot of little things, but like how is that related to like being fearful and being full of worry? And so he illustrated that to me with a real-life event. Um, a couple weeks ago, Bree reminded me that she had invited a friend over to do a vocal lesson. So she told me in the morning, hey, don't forget, Zach's coming over tonight at 6 o'clock. And I was like, he's coming over at 6? She was like, yeah. And I was like, well, I need to go to the store. She was like, well, why do you need to go to the store? I was like, well, I need to make him dinner now. Like, he's coming to our home. I need to make him dinner. He's coming over. At bare minimum, I need a charcuterie board, okay? I need, like, three cheeses and some dried meats and crackers. Like, I, I have to do these things. And she's laughing. She's like, no, you don't. Sure enough, of course, I made an entire meal. Um, so when Zach shows up to our house, you know, food is ready. Like, I want him to come in and be welcomed. And, like, here's, your, here's like, cups. And you can get all ice and water. And, like, come on, sit down. We'll have a meal together. And then when we got done, like, I had made dessert. And I made them some lattes. And so Bree and him went to go do their vocal lesson. I went and just sat all the stuff there and, so that they could have stuff while they're doing their vocal lesson. And then I went off and like cleaned and, you know, did the dishes and stuff. And then after I got done, I went to my office and I just started working. And I felt God say to me, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm working, like probably working on this sermon. <laughs> I was like, I'm just working. And he's like, why? I was like, what do you mean? I've done what I needed to do. Like, I made dinner, I made dessert, I made sure he had coffee, like, I made sure they were comfortable, made sure Zach felt like he was welcomed. And he was like, none of that means anything if you then spend the rest of the evening in another room. Like, how is that welcoming? How is that welcoming into your home? He can be served at McDonald's. Zach can go to Red Lobster and have somebody wait on him. What he wants is to have fellowship with you and Bree. He's like, so get up and go sit in the living room and talk to him. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> so I sat on the living room, I sat on the couch, and then we ended up talking for a few hours. And honestly, that was far more fruitful to get to know Zach better 
than it was ultimately if you look down at the root, 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 showing off my, my, my skills of homemaking, my skills of like welcoming people, right? Showing off my skills of being a host. Far more important to know that Zach and I have a stronger relationship, that we have a, a brothership in Christ, right? Far more important. And so I'm like, okay, I'm getting it a little bit more now, Lord. I can see I'm the Martha. Okay, I see. But how does that relate to like fear, like, how does that relate to fear? And so I had to start going, okay, well, like, first thing we need to understand, like, what is fear? So, you know, I think when we typically say fear, we think of, like, being scared, right? Um, I don't watch scary movies. I don't like them. Um, my wife also does not watch anything scary, which Brie watches Pixar movies. Like, that's what we watch in our house. Brie has watched Trolls 3 15 times in the past two weeks. Like, Bree just watches, though, she does not, like, step out of that realm. She will not watch Jurassic Park um, because they're just big, scary dinosaurs who want to eat people. That's scary to her. To me, like, I'm thinking about, like, horror movies, right? Like, I don't like watching horror movies mainly because it's, like, not that scary. Like, somebody comes down a dark hallway, and it's just, like, dark. I'm like, of course, there's a monster in there. Like, duh. Like, don't go down there. Like, it's obvious. But... Um, when I was younger, my parents worked all the time. Both of them had full-time jobs, um, so they worked from like 6 a.m. to like 7 p.m. I spent a lot of time alone, and one evening they were gone later than usual for some reason, and so beforehand, my mom took me to Blockbuster. Blockbuster's the store where they used to have like movies. Okay, yeah. Um, they took me to Blockbuster, and we rented, or went to go get a movie or something, and then they left me 20 bucks for pizza, 20 bucks could buy pizza, like an entire pizza back then. Um, so I'd get pizza and a drink or whatever, and my parents were off. And so I'm sitting in front of the TV, and I decide I'm going to rent a movie. And I'm like, I'm by myself. It's nighttime. I'm going to watch a scary movie. Like, I'm a big man now. I'm like 13, 14 years old. I'm going to watch a scary movie. So I don't know if any of you know the movie The Grudge. It came out like around the early 2000s. Well, there's an original version of it that was made in Japan in like the late 80s, early 90s. And I was like, okay, if they made a remake of this movie, it has to be scary. So I'm gonna watch the original Grudge. So I turn it on and I make it like halfway and I eventually am like, nope. And I go upstairs in my room and I turn on all my lights and I get under my covers and I don't go to sleep the entire night because I'm afraid there's some sort of demon lady in my attic who's gonna come eat my toes. I'm like, nope, can't do it. And, and that's just how scary movies are to me. They just like, they get inside my head, like you drive home at night and I'm just like, there's a killer in the woods watching me. Like, I just don't wanna put myself there. That's like fear, like I'm gonna get hurt fear. But in the Bible when we're talking about like fear not or like um, how could you add an hour to your life by worrying, right? That's not like don't be scared of the boogeyman. That's like don't worry about all of the things in life that are going on. Martha's worrying herself with all these things she has to do. I have to make dinner, I have to make sure it's clean, I have to make sure that my home is presentable. Like These are all things that she's worrying about, right? She puts herself in a circumstance where she's becoming fearful of how she's gonna be perceived. She's becoming fearful of how Jesus is gonna look at her. She's becoming fearful of what people are gonna think of her because of the way that she's living her life, right? And that puts her in this, this prison of performance. It puts her in this prison, prison of like, I have to be in control of everything that's going on so that I can control people's opinion of me. I can control outcomes. I can avoid trauma, whatever it is. Um, 
when I was a kid, around the same time as watching The Grudge, maybe that was the, the thing that triggered it, I don't know. But I started developing these tendencies that would probably be considered like elements of OCD. Um, I just remember, again, I don't, I don't remember the first time it happened. I don't remember anything that triggered it, but I remember starting to, you know, I would leave my house by myself a lot. Again, my parents worked a lot. I would be going to work or going to a friend's house or something. So I'm like in my house by myself and I would go to lock the front door and then I would go and make sure the basement door's locked and then I'd go and make sure the back door's locked and then I would go out the garage, shut that door and go, dang, did I shut the front door? Did I lock the front door? Okay, well, let me go check. I'd go back to the front door, go lock the front door, and I'd go lock the basement door, go lock the back door, and go to the garage, and I'd shut the door, and I'd go, oh, I don't know if I did, I, I gotta do it again. And, and it was like, it wasn't that I was like, had the memory of a goldfish, it was that like, I truly was just worried that I had not locked the door. And so I just had this overwhelming like push that I had to go check every lock before I left the house. And I would even get to the point where I drive down the street and in my brain would go, you didn't lock the front door. Did you lock the front door? And I'd go, I don't know now that you're asking me, like, I don't know. So I would drive back home and I would go inside and sure enough would touch the door that is locked. I would touch the basement door that is locked. I would touch the back door that is locked. Shut the garage, get in my car and have that same battle. And I would do that four to eight times every time I left my house. You know, I mean, it, it got to the point where it was like, I knew what I'm doing, like, this is not okay, but like, I don't know what to do about it. Um, and then it developed even worse, and I don't, again, don't know why. Then it got to the point we had a gas stove. I had to make sure that if I had cooked that day, I had to make sure that the stove had been off and that the oven was off. So I'd go to the doorknobs, check my doorknobs, check my doorknobs, check my doorknobs, then go to the stove, one, two, three, four, five, beep, one, two, three, four, five, beep, one, two, three, four, five, beep, okay, it's off. Okay, I get in my car. Driving down the road, you left the stove on, didn't you? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Maybe. And, you know, it's funny looking back now. You can laugh at me. It's okay. You can laugh. It's absolutely insane. Um, but I remember thinking to myself, eventually, I got to the point where I, I remember being in front of my stove, and this was years. Like, I did this for years. I remember standing in front of my stove, crying, just saying, God, please make me stop doing this. Please take this away from me. Like, I am absolutely out of my mind. I am insane. I know this stove is off. I know those doors are locked, but the second I leave this house, I have this voice inside my head that goes, are you sure? Are you sure? And I realized the root of all of that was this idea of me being able to control every aspect of my life. Because what I feared was that if I left the door unlocked, somebody was going to come into my parents' house, steal all of their belongings, I would get blamed, and I would never be forgiven. My fear was that if I left the stove on, our house would burn down, my parents would have nowhere to live, it would be my fault, and they would not forgive me. All of this stuff was rooted in a place of me making sure I was in control of the narrative of my life. If I could trust in myself enough to shut every door, to lock every door, and to make sure my stove and oven was off, I could make sure that I avoided trauma. I could make sure that I avoided any sort of heartache. And then that manifested itself in relationships. Oh, well, like, I just don't have to be invested because if I'm not invested, then I don't have to be hurt when they break up with me. 
It's the same thing. It's this desire to make sure that you control the narrative of your life. And so finally, I remember one day, I was driving, I left my house, and I just hear that voice in my head saying, did you lock the door? And I just remember being like fed up. I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. And I just go to, I, I go to get out, and I heard God, he said, Mitchell, if you can't trust me that you're going to be okay in this situation, you're never going to survive what is coming later. If you can't trust that it's going to be okay if you left that door unlocked, you will never survive what I have planned for you. And I was like, okay. And I, didn't, I did not feel better. <laughs> I still was freaking out. I still was panicked. But God was like, drive away. And I drove down the road feeling terrified, feeling worried that my house was going to burn down or be robbed or something, sink into the pit of the earth. I don't know. I drove away. I went to work or to school or wherever I was going. I came home, and guess what? Everything was fine. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter even if it wasn't. It's not that it was fine, but it was the fact that I could trust God even if it wasn't fine. You know, I was, as I was doing research for this, I was reading some uh, Charles Spurgeon, which if you are a literature nerd like me, is wonderful. Um, you know, he's, he's not quite Shakespeare, but he sounds a little King James. So it depends on how, how in-depth you want to go with your, your English. He, he's got those these and thous and those, but he's, he's rich. But in his, in his book, Away with Fear, he says... Faith looks at all ruins of the fall, and she believes that the blood of Christ will get the victory. She sings her psalm of triumph even while the fight is still ongoing, rejoicing with the apostle that where sin abounds, grace did much more so, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness until eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But fear says, I shall one day die by the hand of the enemy. My frail bark will never stem the flood nor stern through the tempest, but I shall make shipwreck after all. He's illustrating here is this idea that like fear will put you in a place that disqualifies you from being saved. You see people who are fearful saying, oh, of course, like God saved you by grace. The man who committed adultery and, and repented, yeah, he's, he's forgiven. The, the prodigal son rebelling, spending all of his life's, or his parents' life savings, coming back with a repentive attitude, he is forgiven, but not me. Like, you don't know what I've done. You don't, you don't understand the struggles I go through. Yeah, that grace stuff is for you, but it's not for me. And, and Spurgeon goes on to say, and then, my brethren, if fear finds food within, if you start this, this fear of, if you start this, this mindset of disqualifying yourself from salvation and from grace, you start seeing that everywhere around you. He says, if you find food within, it readily finds food without. Sometimes it's in poverty, sometimes it's in sickness, sometimes recollection of the past, and quite as often dread of the future. Even those who have faith in God may occasionally be weak enough to fear and be dismayed about common circumstances to which they ought to be indifferent or over which they ought to have faith. Desponding people can find reasons for fear where there is none. 
A certain class of persons are greatly gifted with the mournful faculty of inventing troubles. If the Lord has not sent them any trial, they make one for themselves. They have a little trouble factory in their houses. They sit down and use their imaginations to meditate terror. They weave sackcloth and scrape up ashes. They know that they shall be bankrupt because there was a downturn in the market. They believe they shall soon be too old to work, for surely they're older than they were a month ago. They feel certain about this dreadful thing and that, and they fret accordingly. None of these things have happened to them yet. None of these things have happened to them yet. And in the judgment of others, they are less likely to happen now than they were, but yet they convert their suspicions to realities and they torture themselves with them through their own fantasies. I had a great-grandmother who was born in 1916. Uh, She died when she was 98 years old, I believe. Um, She went to school until she was in eighth grade, and then she stopped going to school along with her 14 brothers and sisters because it was the Great Depression, and they all had to work on the farm. So she never went back to school. She only had an eighth grade education. She never got a driver's license. She married my great-grandfather, who was the chief of the fire department, had a great job, you know, provided for them, and then he passed away six months after I was born. So the entire time that I knew my great-grandmother in living life, she was a widow. And during that time, um, you know, we didn't spend a ton of time with her. She lived in North Carolina. We lived in Georgia. But anytime we would go visit her, um, you know, she had this chicken little syndrome. Like everything was falling apart. Everything was terrible. Um, She, yeah, the sky is falling. Everything was going wrong. We would go to her house. If the toilet backed up, her plumbing's going bad. We need to destroy the whole thing. if we showed up early, I remember we showed up early one time to her house and she's like, oh, I haven't prepared dinner yet. I'm so sorry. Now you all hate me and I'm so sorry that it's not ready and you're going to hate it anyway. Um, it's just like, we're like, what is this? Where is this coming from? Like, none of us has said anything. Like, we're not upset with you. It's just everything was always wrong. We would drive to a restaurant. Oh, of course. Of course there's traffic. She lived in Salisbury, North Carolina. Do you know where Salisbury, North Carolina is? No, yeah, that's how small it is, okay? They don't have traffic in Salisbury, North Carolina. There is no such thing, but it's just like if there's cars on the road, there's traffic. Oh, now we're going to be late. We get to the restaurant. Hey, it's like a 10, 15-minute wait. Oh, of course there's a wait. Of course there's a wait. Now we have to wait. And then we would sit down, and she'd order like a salad or something, and it would be this giant salad. And she goes, oh, I can't eat all this food. I'm never going to eat all this food. Everyone's going to look at me and think I'm so wasteful because I, I didn't eat all this food. And I'm just like, what is wrong with you? Like, what is going on? Like, everything, everything you do is just this perpetual mindset of the sky is falling, everything's wrong, nothing's going the way I want. And, you know, later, after she's passed, unfortunately, I was never able to, like, talk to her about this, but I look back and I think a young woman who had to stop going to school in eighth grade because she had to go help her family's farm because they're in the middle of the nation's worst financial crisis. That's got to be a little traumatizing. Um, She had a husband, a loving husband, a great husband who provided for her her entire life. You know, she never learned how to drive. Um, She was provided for, and then her husband passes away, and she lives the last 20 years of her life alone. That's got to be a little traumatizing, especially when somebody's been taking care of you most of your life. And so I think my grandmother, my great-grandmother, clung to a lot of this, like, trauma that she experienced in her life. And so everything was seen through these goggles of fear because she was so worried she wouldn't be able to handle what was coming. 
She's so worried that like the next turn, the corner she turns is going to be the last one. <laughs> she, <laughs> I just remembered this, man. When I was, I was like going from like elementary school to middle school. She goes, well, Mitchell, you know, you're going to middle school next year, but I probably won't see that. So, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then I was going from middle school to high school and she goes, you know, Mitchell, I'm going to high school next year, but I probably won't be here to see that. So. I'm like, okay. Um, then I'm graduating high school. She comes to my graduation. <laughs> She's like, well, you're going to college next year, but oh, God, Lord probably won't be here to see that, you know. So I'm like, okay. Like, uh, then she saw me graduate college, by the way. <laughs> and so, like, all my life, all I ever heard was like, I'm probably not going to be here to see this. And I was like, what a like sad mindset to have of this like could die any day. I'm like, yeah, me too. But like, I'm not like walking around holding that on my shoulders. Like, yeah, all of us could die at any point. But the sad thing about that is when you're that deep into, you know, having these fear goggles, seeing everything as like a terror, everything as like this opportunity for disaster, it's, it's, it's an ironic place to be because you, you're constantly seeing things and experiencing situations in a way that like, you're asking for help. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Like, I remember at one point she couldn't pay her bills. You know, she's on my great-grandfather's pension. She was on his pension for 20 years. And there's been times where like she couldn't pay her mortgage or like whatever came up, you know, of course insurance keeps going up and stuff. And so she would say, oh, I'm not going to be able to pay my bills this month. And my parents would say, oh, well, let us do it. And she'd say, oh, no, 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 no. Like, no, you can't do that. I can't let you do that. And I'm like, why? <laughs> Why? Why can't we do that? Like, we are family. Like, this isn't charity. We love you. Like, let us take care of you. Let us help you. But when we're in a place of fear, because we've put ourselves in control, because we've uh, manipulated our lives to where we are now the dictator of every decision, we can't possibly accept help because we can't trust in anybody else. We can't let them in. It's like, oh, the sky is falling. I can't believe I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. And somebody reaches down and says, let me do it for you. And you slap it away and say, no, I'm not worthy of it. I can't possibly take that from you. I'm not worthy of your help. It's, it's ultimately pride displaying itself as, as, you know, just this putting this boundary up to say, no, I can't let you do that. I can't possibly allow you to help me. And so you'll find yourself just in this pit, just rolling down the hill into to more fear, more worry, and slapping away every opportunity somebody presents you to help you. So we know what fear is, and we know what damage it can do. So how do we stop? How do you get over fear and worry? Well, it's really easy. You just look at Luke 12, 25. It says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? So just like stop. Okay, done. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so there's a skit from Al Weinberg, correct me. There's, a, there's this funny skit from, I think it's Will and Grace from back in the 90s, and this lady is going to a therapist, and she's telling the therapist, hey, I have this overwhelming fear that I'm going to be buried alive in a box. And he's like, oh, have you been buried alive in a box? And he's, she's like, no, I haven't. He's like, oh, okay, um, has someone threatened that they're going to bury you alive in a box? She's like, no. And he goes, oh, well, like, just stop. <laughs> and she's like, well, I can't. <laughs> 
And he's like, well, yeah, you can. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, why would you have that fear? Like, just stop being worried about it. And she's like, yeah, that doesn't help. Like, every morning I wake up, I have this overwhelming fear that somebody's going to take me and bury me alive in a box. And he's like, stop. Like, that's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. So they start getting into the shouting match back and forth. And she's like, I can't stop. And he goes, you've got to stop. Like, just stop worrying about it. She goes, I, I can't stop. And he's like, look, you've got to stop or I'm going to bury you alive in a box. You know, she's like, oh, taken aback. <laughs> and I think sometimes, like, I know that's not our intention, but, like, that whole Pinterest gospel where we, like, just throw Bible verses at people, that's kind of how that feels. You know, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? If somebody came, if I told somebody when I was younger, hey, I'm struggling with, like, OCD and, like, being obsessive about doing this or that because I'm afraid I'm going to burn down my parents' house, and they'd be like, who could add a single hour to his life by worrying? Just quit. I'd be like, thank you. That doesn't help me like as I'm crying on the way to work because I think I'm going to ruin my family's lives. Like that doesn't help me. Um, so I'm, I'm still thinking like, well, how, how do we change it? And, and I thought about when Hezekiah was born. Um, Brie was pregnant during COVID. And so she hadn't been to her OB in like a month because just scheduling issues and like we couldn't get her back in. And so it just so happens her water breaks and it's time to go to the hospital. Um, so we go to the hospital and they're like hooking her up to all the machines and checking all the beepy beepies and the computers and stuff. And all the nurses start kind of moving like frantically. And they're not really talking to us. <laughs> they're just like talking to each other and like, you know, acronym speak. Like, we've got an ETE on the PPP and the double-double-double, and I'm like, what's going on? Like, can you please tell me? Bree's eyes are like this, and I'm like, what's going on? Hey, can you talk to me, please? As they're, like, running in and out. Well, it turns out Bree had preeclampsia, um, which, for those of you who don't know, um, if you've ever seen Downton Abbey, it's how, like, one of the main characters dies at the end of season one. So that's all I was thinking about when they told me that's what preeclampsia was. Um, so they're rushing around trying to make sure that her blood pressure is correct and like she's gonna be okay. So that's like strike one for me. Like I'm already like high alert, scared, what's gonna happen to my wife? Um, then she goes to give birth to Hezzy and as she's pushing, they're like, oh, you have to be really careful. The uh, umbilical cord is wrapped around his neck. And so like if you push too hard, you could like strangulate him. And I'm like, okay. Just like completely like out of my hands, what do I do with this? Just like building more and more momentum into my worry factory. Finally, he's birthed. They put him on the little like bed with the little lamp warmers and they're like rubbing him and like making sure he's okay. And the doctor comes to me and he's like, hey, he's like having a really hard time maintaining his core body temperature. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? And he's like, well, it means that if it doesn't maintain, we're gonna have to take him and do a bunch of like scary tests and stuff in another room where you can't come see him. And I'm like, okay. And so it's just like one thing after the other. We were in the hospital for four days. Um, it was Christmas Eve when we left. Um, and we go to, you know, we think we're gonna leave and they go to do the car seat test with Hezzy and they come back and they say, hey, um, he passed his car seat test, but he's extremely jaundiced, and so he can't leave. He needs to have some tests done. Um, and, you know, again, I'm first-time dad. Everything they come tell me, all I hear is he's going to die. Like, that's all I hear. And I'm just panicked. Like, it's, like I'm like, oh, oh, my gosh. And, my, you know, my mother-in-law is like, hey, it's just jaundiced. It's fine. But, like, in my head, I'm like, everything is, like, the worst-case scenario, right? And so 
I needed to leave because I needed to go feed our dog. So I left and I'm driving home and I'm just, I haven't slept in two days, maybe three at this point, stressed out, worried about my wife. I'm worried about my newborn son. And I, I was just talking to my best friend on the way home and I was coming back and I remember sitting in the, the hospital parking lot just crying, just crying, just asking God like, and I don't even know if I was asking God, but I was just doing this cycle that we do in our head of like, what if Bree dies? What if Hezzy dies? What if he's like, you know, hurt? Or like, what if like something's going wrong? Maybe what if I did something? Like what, and you start thinking about like, what did I do to cause this? Or like, should I have, oh, if I had only taken to Bree to the hospital, I should have just insisted. Da, da, da. Like you start putting yourself in this, like, again, it's my fault. It's something that I was in control in. And God like spoke to me as I'm sitting there, and he goes, Mitchell, if Bree and Hezzy both pass away and you leave this hospital by yourself, would you still worship me? And I said, absolutely. Like, there was no question in my mind. I was like, yeah, of course you. Like, Lord, you know deep down in my heart, it doesn't matter what will happen. I will worship you till the day that I die and then beyond. You know that. And he goes, okay. Then your what-ifs need to become even-ifs. I was like, okay. And so I, I got out of my car and I'm drying my eyes. And as I'm like walking in the hospital, I'm just saying, you know what, Lord, even if worst case scenario happens, I will worship you. If you take my wife from me, if you take my son from me, I will submit that to you because they're yours anyway. The car that I drove here in, you supplied me with. The house that I want to take my beautiful bride and my son back to, you supplied me with. The breath in my lungs, Lord, you supplied me with. How could I question you for what you've taken from me? For you've given me everything. Of course I will worship you. And that's how I had to shift my mindset. I had to say, Lord, even if you take these things from me. And the weight, the weight and the burden of control was just lifted off of me because it's not me. I don't have to perform. I don't have to live up to this expectation I've created for myself. I don't have to be the one that has all the answers. Lord, it's you. Everything I have, you've blessed me with. My skills, my, my knowledge, everything comes from you. How can I trust in myself? I've gained nothing of my own power. And so, spoilers, I did leave my wife. I did leave the hospital with my wife and my child. <laughs> He's the three-year-old little blonde kid back here throwing balls at the wall, I'm sure. And praise God. And, and here's the thing, again, going back to the same thing with the OCD thing, it wasn't because he did that that I could trust in him. It was even if that didn't happen, Lord, I would still trust in you. And there's been times in my life where I've still had to do that. There's been times in my life where I've had to say, this didn't turn out the way I wanted to, but Lord, your will be done. It's just easier said than done, you know, in that process, in that moment of fear. Uh, and I want to close just by reading, whoops, I want to close by just reading a psalm and then revisiting our, our anchor verse real quick. It's Psalm uh, 37, 23 through 25. It says, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall. Oh, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Once I was young, and now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. I want to go back to that, our anchor verse with Martha. You know, he says, Jesus answers her, Martha, Martha. 
And I think we can, in English, we hear that as like, mm, bless your heart, you know, like, like Martha. But like in other translations, and ironically, I looked at the Spanish translation, and it's like, it's precious Martha, dear Martha, my dear Martha. This isn't Jesus going, oh, you poor little worrisome thing. He's going, he's looking at his child who he loves, and he's saying, Martha, I can see you are striving for so much, and I can see you are busying yourself with things because you feel as though you have something to prove to me. I see you doing that. Lord, precious Marcia, Marcia, Martha. <laughs> Mary has chosen the thing that will not be taken from her. This, this meal that we've prepared can disappear. The car that we drove in to get here can, can disappear, can be taken away. Our home can be taken away. Our very lives can be taken from us. Our faith in God. God's provision and His eternal self and promises cannot be taken away. That's the only thing we can hang our hats on. That's the only thing we can trust in. No matter how good you are, as much as I think I am a welcoming host, I can't trust in myself ultimately. Like, it's just, it's ridiculous. God has given us everything we need. How could we not ultimately trust in Him above all else?